If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is the murder of Peter Keim by his close friend William Stolzer, and even though there's no mystery over who killed who, the events which precede and follow it are truly baffling. Murder Mile contains grisly details, which won't be suitable for delicate daisies, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 14, William Stolzer and the Stabbing of Peter Kine. Today, I'm on Big Street in Soho, a one-way street which runs parallel to Broadwick Street. The home of Ginger Ray and Soho's deadliest dentist, Isidore Ziefert. It runs past Carnaby Street, the site of the Blue Lagoon, where Margaret Cook was gunned down, and leads to London's infamous Regent Street. Although an innocuous little road, which is eternally shrouded in dark shadows, Owing to a tangled mess of terrifyingly tall flats, shops and townhouses, which ominously loom over either side of this tight little single-lane street, Big Street is the kind of place where tourists don't go and most locals don't know. But centuries ago, Big Street was one of the West End's busiest city highways, which linked Piccadilly Circus and Oxford Circus. So prominent was this street, it was one of the first to be paved in stone and was named after Thomas Beek, the personal messenger to Queen Elizabeth I. Although largely forgotten today, except by delivery drivers desperate to avoid the choking, snarling chaos of Oxford Circus, 
This 320 meter long stretch of road is the only surviving section of this ancient highway, which was known up until 1883 as Silver Street, and is still dotted to this day with a hodgepodge of late 17th and early 18th century grade two listed buildings, which were once packed full of famous painters, writers, and composers. But by the 1840s, when our story begins, Silver Street, like most of Soho, had already descended into squalor, a place famed for drink, drugs and debauchery, packed full of tumble-down workhouses, hardly habitable lodging houses, it was home to one of the West End's largest plague pits, riddled with rotting corpses buried ten layers deep, a festering water pump so rancid that just 13 years later it killed one-sixth of Soho's population, as well as being the seedy side street where Peter Kimes' guts, gizzard and innards were ripped at the hands of his good friend, William Stolzer. William Stolzer is an enigma, whose life is as mysterious as the murder he committed. And yet, had he not stabbed Peter Kime to death, William, like so many millions of long-forgotten commoners, would have disappeared into unrecorded obscurity, the unremarkable life of an unimportant pauper lost in the midst of time. And although all we know is that William Stolzer was born Wilhelm Stolzer in either Hamburg or Cologne sometime in 1815, he had no known criminal record, medical history, nor immigration papers. He was an unmarried man with no surviving parents, siblings, or children, who by 1843 was living a hard, cold, and often hungry hand-to-mouth existence in the slums of Soho. So what we do know about the mysterious life of William Stolzer, and maybe even the reason why his sole goal that night was to stab, slice, and slop out onto Silver Street the warm, steamy guts of Peter Kime, is gleaned solely from the tantalising tidbits documented in court transcripts about those fateful days prior to the murder. On Wednesday the 20th of September, 1843, ten days before he filleted his faithful friend, 28-year-old German native William Stolzer, an uneducated part-time cobbler, entered the shop of Nicholas Derry, a bootmaker on Silver Street, who over the last five years had hired William to mend shoes. At first, William was a shy, quiet, but conscientious worker, who although he was a little bit odd, was more than adequate at providing simple repairs to shoes for an agreeable price. But slowly, as his moods got blacker, his eyes wilder and his demeanour more aggressive, his workmanship sloppy, slipshod and shoddy. And this day was no exception as having been given three pairs of boots to repair, William Stolzer had returned with just two, having sold one pair for a bottle of gin. 
William was well known in the local community as a laughable, harmless buffoon, who was prone to humble brags, little white lies, and outright bullshit, often claiming that he was Prince Albert and Napoleon Bonaparte, even going so far as to accentuate his tatty threadbare rags with a wild flourish, like a handmade crown or a French military bicorn hat, to accentuate this deeply deluded tale, some of which he would do while streaking naked through the streets of Soho. But during this final year, even brief stints in the local insane asylum had done little to exacerbate his eccentricity. As with a toxic mix of street gin, malnutrition and an undiagnosed mental illness flooding his booze-addled brain, the harmless buffoon was gone, only to be replaced by a volatile beast who was much darker. Having been fleeced too many times, and still stuck with a slew of unpaid debts, the boodmaker, Nicholas Derry, who was William's sole employer, sacked him on the spot and ordered him to leave. Describing William in court as a fidgety, feeble and weak-minded weirdo who people often laughed at, Nicholas demanded, You'd better go or I shall make you. To which William, his eyes wild and a clenched fist in his pocket of his leather apron, he threatened, I shall make you pay for that and kill you very likely. And although William was not big, strong or well, Nicholas had already experienced William's volatile side. Nicholas wisely grabbed William's right arm, twisted that clenched fist behind his back and ushered the madman out of his shop forever. Or so he thought. On Tuesday the 26th of September 1843, just four days before William Stolzer would split the contents of Peter Kime's stomach, William returned to Nicholas Derry's cobbler's shop and stood there, silently. His teeth gritted, his eyes glazed and unblinking, as his twitching right hand fiddled in the pocket of his leather apron. But being a scrawny, feeble man, who could hardly cut a sinister figure. Instead of being scared, Nicholas's sister just laughed, as she always did, into William's face, and joked, What is it, my sweetheart? Have you anything else the matter with you? To which William, saying nothing, slowly approached her, and sidling up to her, standing eyeball to eyeball, he removed a bootmaker's knife from his apron pocket, held the six-inch wood-handled blade just inches from her face, and goading her to taunt him some more, he muttered, I wonder what you would say if I stabbed you. Fearing for his sister's life, Nicholas ducked into the back room to find something sharp and heavy to arm himself. A chair, a poker, anything. But by the time he'd returned, his sister was safe, and William had gone. That evening, having borrowed a large stone bottle of Bartholomew Mauritius, 
His impoverished, terrified and rather reluctant flatmate, who had shared not only a small cramped one-roomed bedroom with William Stolzer, but also his flea-ridden bed. William staggered to the Blue Post pub on the corner of Broadwick Street and Berwick Street, a pub which still exists today, and needing his lethal fix, filled the stone bottle with a gallon of gin and gulping back great glugs of booze, he unsteadily stumbled back to his tumble-down lodgings at number 4 Benting Street, just a few streets away, a dead-end street at the back of Broadwick Street, where he consumed the full eight pints of liquid death, and then went to bed. Had Bartholomew Mauritius not been so broke, he wouldn't have had to share a coarse horsehair bed in a dank dark hovel with a wildly unstable alcoholic who'd regularly drink himself into a deadly drunken stupor, only to spend the night ranting, raving, fitting, frothing and sleeping with his fetid feet raised a full foot above the bed. It's probably not surprising to learn that a few months prior to this, William Stolzer had and not for the first time in his life, had been committed to the St. Marlebone Hospital, the local insane asylum. The insane asylums of the 1800s were less a place where the insane were cared for and cured, and more a place where the insane were hidden from view by shamed families who committed their unruly relative for such minor medical misdemeanours as depression, anxiety claustrophobia, epilepsy, nymphomania, and even masturbation. Where the quality of the patient's care was entirely dependent on their social status, class, and income. As an impoverished alcoholic with no funds nor family, William Stoltz's committal to the St. Marlebone Asylum, which was designed for 300 patients but housed 1,300, was basic. With no heating, light, colour or joy, the patients were forced into a rigorous routine of hard work, plain food, solitude and religion, with the belief that strict discipline would return them to sanity. And although many patients were trained to brew, make bread and in William's case, mend boots, the bare walls, the flea-ridden sheets and the daily beatings having been left naked, starved and chained to their beds in a cell barely 8 feet by 6 feet. It's not surprising that many patients came out worse than when they went in. And just like today, there was very little, if any, support when they were released back into the community. The next four days in the story of William Stolzer are a mystery, as no one knows where he was what he was doing, or who he was with. But what's obvious is that he was broke, angry, and unstable. Over those missing days, William apparently pestered his few remaining friends for funds to fuel his booze binge, one of whom was Peter Keim, a fellow German bootmaker who over the 16 months that they'd known each other had helped William as best he could. But being married with three children and struggling financially, Peter was broke. 
What was said between the two men was neither witnessed nor recorded. But what happened next would change their lives forever. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. On Saturday the 30th of September, 1843... At roughly 10pm, PC William Merrifield, a police constable assigned to the Vine Street Police Station, was patrolling the west end of Broadwick Street, when he heard a terrified voice scream, MURDER! Sprinting down Marshall Street, PC Merrifield saw 30-year-old Peter Kime running for his life. His hand was clutched to his stomach, as just three yards behind him, William Stolzer gave chase. A glint of hatred in his eyes, a maniacal grin across his face, and a bootmaker's knife balled up in his fist. With PC Merrifield pursuing both men along Marshall Street, 
they quickly scurried right at the Silver Street coffee shop and cut down Silver Street. But with Peter Kime having quickly ducked left onto Upper James Street and safely ensconced himself in the bushes in Golden Square, as William Stolzer had lost sight of his breathless and bleeding victim, Stolzer had stopped, stood silently and smoked his tobacco pipe, which throughout the entire chase had remained in his mouth. As PC Merrifield slipped onto Silver Street, Stolzer unsuccessfully tried to hide himself in a small, dark alley. But with his breathing laboured, his shoes squeaky, great plumes of smoke billowing from the puffing pipe, and worse still, Marie Nelson, who was a witness to the whole event, pointing directly at him and loudly stating to the constable, There he is! PC Merrifield quickly apprehended William Stolzer. And with a firm policeman's hand perched on his collar, and seeing the broken-tipped blade of the bootmaker's knife balled up in his fist, the constable queried, My dear man, what are you going to do with that in your hand? Shaking, twitching and sweating, but seeming neither drunk, sober nor reeking of booze, as being too poor to drink, it is suspected that he was in the depths of alcohol withdrawal, William bluntly stated how with malice on his mind, he wanted to run the full length of his six-inch blade deep into Peter Kime's belly, bowel, and even his boy bits. But had it not been for the rough leather which had lined the inside of Peter Kime's bootmaker's trousers, he would have, to quote William Stolzer, ripped it all out of him, suggesting that at some point during the night he had attempted to cut off Peter's cock. William Stolzer was frog-marched to the Vine Street Police Station over Regent Street and just shy of Piccadilly Circus, where he was cautioned, questioned and searched. But with him not being drunk, his blade being clean, the knife being a perfectly legal tradesman's tool, and even though he'd openly confessed to a policeman to the brutal stabbing of Peter Kime, as no victim was found, William Stolzer was released. He was escorted back to his squalid lodgings at number 4 Benting Street and left in the charge of William Henry Bolton, a fellow lodger who had no legal authority to hold him until the police could ascertain what, if any, crime had been committed. At roughly 11pm, one hour after William Stolzer had attempted to gut, kill and castrate his close friend Peter Kime, William Henry Bolton stood in the parlour with PC Merrifield, questioning the state of William Stolzer's mind. As just a few weeks earlier, fearing for the safety of his wife and young children, who also lodged at number 4 Benting Street, Bolton had unsuccessfully tried to obtain a parish doctor's certificate to have Stolzer committed to an asylum, believing he was not in a fit state to be at large. But with this being a Saturday night, and no doctors being open until at least Monday morning, William Henry Bolton knew that he was stuck, and as he waved goodbye to the constable, he was left in the company 
of a madman. Desperate to pacify the possible psychopath, whose face was a mad mix of strange and vacant, Bolton thought it best to appear cheerful, bright and jocular, hoping that this good mood would rub off on the silent and staring Stolzer, and invited him to take a light supper with him of bread and cheese. And even though beer was offered, unusually for an alcoholic, William drank nothing but water. After ten minutes of stilted silence, long sighs and glazing glares, with Bolton having trod the careful balance between being caring, casual and cautious, Stolzer finally spoke, and with a dark brooding gloom having descended across the baggy tired lines of his weary face, he politely muttered, May I have a candle? And having bestowed his fellow lodger with a light, Bolton watched as Stolzer slunk outside into the darkness of the yard and entered the solitude of Bentinck's communal toilet. The flickering glow of the candlelight illuminating the cracks between the wooden walls of the shithouse. Moments later, Bolton heard a loud knock at the door. And there before him stood PC Jesse Japes, the constable from Vine Street Police Station who just 30 minutes earlier had booked in and just as quickly dismissed William Stolzer. With the news that, although gravely ill, Peter Kine had been found alive. Desperate to dispense with his duties as the guardian of a homicidal maniac, Bolton exclaimed, you must get him into custody. And with all the subtlety of an axe wound, PC Jesse Japes exclaimed, I should be very happy to do so, or he will stab you, or some of your family. Wasting no time, both men dashed across the pitch black yard towards the candlelit crapper, and although inside the wooden walls, they heard the echo of an ominous groan. This was not the typical exhale of a grunting man expelling a gassy but satisfying dump, but a deathly groan, followed by a heavy thud. Fearing the worst, PC Japes yanked open the toilet door, only to find William Stolzer, his face purple, his tongue swollen, and a silken handkerchief tightly tied around his neck as a trickle of blood oozed from the bloody gash on his forehead, as he lay slumped on the floor in a festering pile of piss, as above him hung a rusty broken pipe, which just moments earlier he had used to hang himself. Although barely conscious and hardly breathing, PC Japes revived Stolzer, escorted him back to the Vine Street Police Station, where he was held over the weekend and charged with the attempted murder of Peter Keim. To which, the only words that William Stolter uttered were, I would like my pipe. And then he sat there, smoking his tobacco, and never once uttering another word. But the charge of attempted murder would not stick. Not through lack of evidence, confessions, nor witnesses, but because by 4pm on Monday afternoon, Peter Keim was dead. Having been stabbed at 10pm on Saturday the 30th of September 1843, 
Although the six-inch bootmaker's knife had penetrated just two inches into the left-hand side of his belly, the surgeon saw no hope for Peter Kime. As although his leather trousers had saved his manhood from a more horrific injury, the blade had penetrated his bowel in two places, piercing the intestine and spilling a caustic mix of stomach acid, blood and human waste which sloshed about his belly. As over the next 42 hours, Peter's innards grew more bloated, swollen and inflamed. As riddled with a toxic infection, his last days alive were spent writhing in agonising pain. Until finally, his life ceased. On Monday the 23rd of October 1843, just three weeks after the excruciating death of Peter Keim, 28-year-old William Stolzer was tried at the Old Bailey on the more serious charge of murder. During his four-hour trial, William Stolzer was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial. And although he was present throughout the court proceedings, he never made a statement in his own defence. No prior grievance nor feud was established between Peter Keim and William Stolzer. No motivation was given as to why William Stolzer would want to kill Peter Keim. And although he confessed to the murder... No one had actually seen William Stolzer fight, argue or stab Peter Keim. There was no blood found on his clothes, his hands and even the knife itself. A theory which the prosecution's own surgeon explained away by stating that when a knife is retracted from a human cadaver, as the blade rubs against fat, skin, hair and clothes, that it often wipes itself clean. And yet whether or not this theory is even correct, never once was it rebutted by the defence. What is clear is that William Stolzer was mentally unwell. He was a deeply deluded, hopeless alcoholic with suicidal tendencies who was regularly hospitalised in a local insane asylum, having been deemed unfit to be at large. And although he was seen as simply a harmless buffoon, who would streak naked, sleep with his feet one foot above the bed, and truly believe that he was Prince Albert and Napoleon, there was no denying that he had a darker side, and inner demons who were only assuaged by drink. And although an insanity plea was put forward by his defence, no physician was called to comment on his mental state. No doctors gave evidence as to why he'd been committed to an insane asylum. And although he was deemed unfit to stand trial, he was deemed fit to be punished for his crimes. Having deliberated for five whole minutes, the jury returned, satisfied that it was William Stolzer who had inflicted the fatal wound that had killed Peter Keim and he was found guilty of murder. Donning his black hat, Mr Justice Maul passed the following sentence. William Stolzer, you have been found guilty of the crime of willful murder, which is one of the few offences punishable by death. 
it appears you inflicted a wound upon the unfortunate deceased, of which he died. It appears you pursued the unfortunate man, that you declared your intention to stab him, and death was inflicted under the circumstances. Your counsel set up in your defence the plea that you were not of sound mind, and that you did not know what you were doing. The jury have not been of the opinion that there was any ground for this supposition, or that there was evidence to show that you were incapable of judging this for yourself. Under the circumstances, therefore, it only remains for me to put upon you the sentence of law, which is that you be taken to the place from whence you came, and from thence to a place of public execution, that there you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Throughout the trial, William Stolzer uttered no sounds, made no movements, and even upon hearing of his death sentence, he exhibited no emotion. And although he was clearly insane, the gallows outside Newgate Prison were hastily readied, as a rabid public eagerly awaited the yank of the pulley, the drop of his body, the snap of his neck, and the cheer of the crowd in a very public execution. But as mysterious as the life of William Stolzer was prior to the murder of Peter Kime, the death of William Stolzer is even stranger. One week before his execution, the Court of Appeals, with no reason given, commuted his death sentence to transportation. Meaning although he was clearly mentally ill, instead of being killed, he would serve a total of seven years as a forced labourer in the colonies, after which he would be freed to live the rest of his days in lovely sunny Australia. And yet, of the 18 ships that set sail for Australia at the end of 1843 and all of 1844, such as the Equestrian, Greenlaw, Blundell, London, Cadet, Marie Soames, Angelina, Agincourt, Lord Auckland, Royal George, William Jardine, Tasmania, Phoebe, Hyderabad and Sir George Seymour, all of which landed in either Port Phillip in New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land in Tasmania, there never was a William Stolzer on board. And after 1843, there were no medical records, no prison files, no death certificate for William Stolzer. And there's no evidence that he was ever transported to Australia. So, as an undocumented man of mysterious origins, who didn't seem to exist on any record before 1843, by 1844, once again, William Stolzer had simply disappeared. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And a special thank you goes out to all of those people who posted reviews on iTunes and other podcast platforms. It is very much appreciated, it really does mean a lot to me, and it makes me feel all warm inside. So thank you. Don't forget to check out my blog for more photos, videos and maps surrounding this case and all other episodes by going to my website murdermiletours.com forward slash blog. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself. 
with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is the almost double deaths of the dishwasher. Thank you, and sleep well.